from the Center for Culturally Responsive Teaching and Learning. It's the Outrageous Love Podcast with your fabulous host, Dr. Sharaki Holly. Welcome to Outrageous Love, the podcast. Once again, thank you for the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with you highlighting very special educators uh, across the country. And today we have two fabulous um, CLR cadre members who are sizzling hot, Elise and Tony. And I can't wait for you to hear their stories, hear their journeys. Um, we're going to begin where we always begin, folks, with telling your face that you're happy wherever you are. Just give a big smile around the room, on the pathway, up hiking up, whatever. Just just tell your face that you're happy. And that's really just saying that whatever we're going through, it's going to be all right. It's going to work out. Then uh, since we're coming up on the mainstream, very commercialized, so-called Valentine's Day, um, and I really hate to go there, trust me, but I'm going to use it as an opportunity for you to show yourself some love. And I just want you to give yourself, you know, a big hug and buy you some chocolate just for you. Okay. Just buy you some chocolate. Keep it to yourself as your way of celebrating that you love you some you. And just say, I love me some me as you give yourself uh, a big hug. Okay. All right. And then we're going to show love to other people. And we're going to show love, folks, by, as usual, you know, I, I really think we're in this sort of, seems like it's always, but in this sort of uh, mood of reaching across the aisle, right? So I want you to use this opportunity. And if you've been with me for these uh, almost now three years, you know, I'm really big on trying to connect with people that we disagree with, that we think may not be aligned to where we are. And so I want you to find somebody who fits that description. And I want you just to send them a kindness note, a love note, a, a thank you note, an appreciation note. And it's really just saying, you know, without them, you wouldn't be uh, so charged up or you wouldn't have a reason to, you know, uh, get riled up around, especially around this work. And you just want to just appreciate them for the, the engagement. All right. Now, this is somebody you don't agree with. This is somebody that, you know, is not aligned with what we're trying to do. And I just want us to kind of, you know, show that we still have love, you know, even though we don't uh, agree. All right. OK, we're going to move on now and I'm going to give you Dr. Holly's two cents. Dr. Holly's two cents. Two cents, two cents. Don't get it twisted. Dr. Holly's two cents. I'm just trying to make the point. Don't get it twisted. Here's the real question. Here's what I've been thinking. Here's what I've been thinking. Listen up. I'm going to really kind of preview our interview with the two educators from Parkway because I think that something that comes up in the interview is a kind of a place where we need to go collectively. And it sort of struck me in two ways. And I'm referring to what we all heard and or saw with Tyree Nichols in Memphis and I'm referring to that. And it kind of hit me in two ways. One way was a documentary that I became aware of that shows how basically the video camera or body cameras have obviously shown us things that we would not ordinarily have seen, right? Obviously, 
right? And it all started basically with Rodney King, okay? Which is caught on video. Um, and so this this documentary, which I think is saying, it's something to the, I don't have the exact title and I know that I should, so I apologize, but it documents all the video footage that we have of police abuse, police murder, right? And may, essentially making the point that the video camera or the body camera was supposed to help. It was supposed to make a difference. And essentially it has not because even though we have body cameras, even though we know we got people with cell phones on the street everywhere, even though we know we got street cameras up in the sky, like basically you look up on some of these light poles, you can see the cameras. We still continue to see the denigration of black men, primarily and women and others as well. Right. And in effect, saying that has the body camera really made a difference? And I think if we look at it sort of scientifically, it probably has. But when you see something like or hear, I didn't I didn't watch the video, but I heard it. I mean, I happened to be driving when it first came out and I was glad that I didn't see it because I was just listening to it. I was able to kind of make the decision that I didn't want to see it. Right. So I didn't I didn't watch the whole video. I've only I've only seen clips, but I heard the whole thing. Right. And it's amazing to know that these so-called officers knew that they had body cameras on and yet they continued to do what they did. So the, the question that I'm throwing out is we think of all these things that we're supposed to be doing to help. And the question is, are they really helping? And I think that question applies, obviously, with police reform. And I think it applies with education reform as well. And we could make a parallel sort of dialogue around what did we think was going to make a difference? And it actually has not made a difference. And I'm saying that even in the context of the equity work itself, have we really met the task or are we spinning our wheels around professional learning, around reform, around, you know, resource allocation? That was supposed to be an issue, too. From all accounts, Memphis checked all the boxes. And yet we still get a situation that we got with the murder of a black man by law enforcement. Right. And I'm, I, you know, I, I do need to say that we know that most law enforcement are responsible professionals and do what they're supposed to do. So this is not a knock against law enforcement in any way. And what I'm asking is what we say we need to do and when we do it, does it really make a difference? And I'm asking that in the context of education reform specifically. That's, you know, I just like asking the questions. I'm not here to give the answers, but I want you to think about some things that maybe your district or your school has put in place successfully, well-resourced. Everybody got trained, but yet the outcomes have remained the same. And this is linked to the interview that you're about to hear because not to give it away, but both of these educators essentially used Michael Brown, which again, if you want to go back another episode, we didn't we didn't see this on a video directly, but Michael Brown in St. Louis, the killing of Michael Brown as a touch point 
for their own sort of educational change or, or transformation. And um, I found that was interesting, given that we were now dealing with Mr. Nichols. And I do ask the question, how are you connecting how you started in terms of what happened with Michael Brown? And and now all the, all the incidents that have happened since Michael Brown leading up to Nichols and how is that connecting to, you know, you as an educator, given Michael Brown was a touch point, you know, and again, asking this question, which is a recurring theme in our work, is there hope? Is it hopeful? Is it, you know, or is it another indicator that we're not going to reach the success that we all want because these things persist? Or as um, Dr. Cruz said in the December episode, maybe the system is just working like it's supposed to. We keep calling it broken, but it's really not broken. It's doing what it's supposed to do, right? And really what I'm trying to get at in my own wonderment is, are we really asking the right questions, I guess, is what I'm looking at, based on what we see, like what happened with Mr. Nichols, and has happened so many times to so many others, okay? So not to get too deep or philosophical, but that's just where I am. So now we're going to bring on our two sizzling hot educators, both from the Parkway Schools in St. Louis. So we're going to introduce first Tony Dwiggins. Um, I hope I'm saying that right, Tony. I apologize. From uh, Parkway Schools, he teaches at Parkway West Middle School, where he is a key contributor to the middle school social studies curriculum on the committee, district-wide committee. He's also on the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee. He was 2019 District Teacher of the Year. He spent nine years in Parkway. Before that, he was in Monroe City, and he has a BA and MAE from Truman State University. And with him, we have Elise Meyer, who is also a teacher in Parkway. She teaches at Sorrento Springs and she serves on their leadership team. She's a mentor teacher. She was co-leader of the Personalized Learning Task currently, I should say, and uh, as a key presenter for professional development. She also has been a presenter or worked within Hazelwood School District, where we did a lot of work as well. She's taught at Sorrento Springs as well as Hannah Woods Elementary. And in Hazelwood, she taught at Barrington Elementary. She is a member of the Project-Based Learning Cohort, the Digital Age Cohort. Uh, I could just list them on and on. She has a long list, folks, of all the things that she's involved in. Very active, very active person. And her education is out of the University of Missouri, Columbia, where she has a Bachelor of Science in Education Elementary and then a Master's of Teaching and Learning with a focus on curriculum. So now that I've stumbled through those, let's welcome Tony Annalise. We're ready to bring on our next two sizzling hot CLR cadre members all the way from Parkway Schools in St. Louis, Tony and Elise. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yes. So excited to be here. We're glad to have you. And I thank you for taking the time. First of all, please know that this is a way of us honoring your work 
and all you do for your students is just a way of just kind of giving homage to you. That's the way I look at it. That's how I've always looked at this podcast, just a way to just uh, highlight educators across the country. So we're going to start off with, um, since our theme is Sizzling Hot, we're going to start off by asking you, and don't feel that you have to be modest, <laughs> what makes you a Sizzling Hot CLR cadre, cadre member? Go for it, Elise. Okay. Um, what makes me sizzling hot? Well, um, I love what I do and I come to work every single day just wanting to be the best me that I can be for all of my students and learners. Uh, I also feel like I am super energetic and I am not afraid to share what I think. So that makes me sizzling hot. I think uh, something that has made me sizzling hot um, around the CLR work is the uh, approach that I've taken this year. Uh, last last year, my, my approach was to just like, you know, I looked at all of the cultural behaviors and I was like, okay, I'm going to have this and this and this. And we're going to do this protocol, that protocol. And I was just throwing everything at the wall to see what stuck. And for me, that felt like it was last year. I was like, okay, I think I'm doing stuff, but I... I don't know if the kids are getting it or whatever. So this year I've kind of, I've decided to like really go, go real slow and steady. And I've had a real organized approach this year where I said, okay, each month I'm going to focus on one cultural behavior. And I've, uh, I've been really transparent with the kids. I've just asked them to kind of join me on my CLR journey and just tell them like, look, we are, we are building skills. I want you to build skills so that you can work anywhere with anyone. And so each month we just kind of right now, this month we're, we're talking about um, uh, communal versus individual. And so I try to make sure that every day uh, we do something that uh, is communal and also individual uh, later on. And just so by me being really uh, explicit and transparent with the kids, um, they're able to explain even why we're doing things. And I've got. I've got 12-year-olds using words like kinesthetic and actually know what it means. I'm like mm-hmm. impressed that I didn't know what that meant at 12. And so it's <laughs> it's been awesome to just kind of take it slow and steady and see, see that progress. And I haven't felt as overwhelmed uh, with it. And I don't think the kids are either. That's great. That's great. And that's certainly where we want to go. I, I was with a group of teachers yesterday and I told them the pinnacle of this is when your students – can identify the cultural behaviors Mm -hmm. and then begin to see how you're teaching in a way to validate them Mm -hmm. through the cultural behavior. Once, once they can articulate it and I've seen it as, you know, third grade, fourth grade, seventh grade, you know, using the terminology. And so for me, that is really one of the main signifiers that you've really implemented at a level that we need, we're all trying to get people to implement Mm it. So kudos, kudos to you. All right. Let's go to our sort of prescribed questions. Number one, so my premise is that people like yourselves, you've kind of been feeling, doing, living this long before CLR, right? And so I like to tap into the, er, I call it the early years Mm -hmm. of your own equity walk. When you, like, when you kind of knew, like, you looked at, you had this lens, Right now, I tell people to don't go back to when you were a baby, mm-hmm. but it's good to know, like, before you really got into it, that you had some inclination that you were sort of 
had a proclivity to do this work? Yeah. So when I started out my teaching career, I did a fellowship where I got my master's the first year teaching uh, in a district in St. Louis. So some background around St. Louis, for those of you that don't know, it's a very interesting city. Um, You have the suburbs, you have the city, and you have West County, North County, South County, and you can be so close geographically, but still the cultures and everything is just so different. Um, so I grew up in West County, which is majority white. Um, we have this program that buses kids in from the city. It's called VST. It's a very rare, different, not a program that's used in a lot of places. Uh, so the school I went to was majority white kids and the kids that came to our school, that were African-American or black, they were busted from the city. So I got a job in North County. Um, So it was so interesting to me. It was a place I had never really been before. And that was like a smack in the face. Like you literally grew up 30 minutes away from this and you have never been up here. So that was like a first eye-opening moment for me and really a smack in the face. And that was like my first moment when I really realized wow, we live in St. Louis City, but there is such a difference in education, such a difference in cultures from when we're so close geographically. So that was really when it like stuck out to me that, yeah, there needs to be some some changes. Let me let me ask you this, though, as just a quick follow up. Anytime before that, when you sort of had that exposure, was there something internal where you knew that like you had sort of an openness to even that realization, even before you were exposed to that. You know, my premise is that it was it's something in somebody early on that leads them to that space. Oh, yeah. I, I think growing up, I was always open. Like, I think I always um, was I thought it was weird that they bust these kids in from that. Like to me that like always felt not like, why does it have to be like that? Like, why is that the way that our school is set up? So I think I always knew that I was open to every, like I, I was, I didn't care. I, I was like, I knew that something was not, it didn't feel right with me that that was what, how it was set up. If that makes sense. No, that makes sense. Okay. 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 And that, that, okay. All right. Cool. 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 Tony, uh, f- for me, um, I was all well. Here, let me start. Let me start with this: the uh, quintessential St. Louis question. Uh, where'd you go to high school, Elise? Marquette that, High School, Rockland. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's just a very common question in St. Louis yep. because it's uh, you you live so close, but there are such big differences socioeconomically and culturally. Uh, so I I grew I grew up just across the river uh, in St. Charles County. Mm-hmm. And um, so that that is uh, is similar, similar to West County. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I was um, pretty much raised in like that that dominant culture. Uh, so pretty much my house uh, mirrored what school culture was. And so when I went to school, I was like, OK, well, this is I'm doing all the right things. I'm seated. I'm you know sitting still. I'm taking my turn when I talk. Um, yeah, all, all of those things. Um and I, I ended up doing an exchange program in high school, um, and I, I traveled uh, to Germany uh, for three weeks. 
And uh, when I was there, I um, <laughs> found myself eating way more than I was comfortable with because um, I, I I was just used to kind of being like a little a little passive and just like a little kind and like didn't want to be rude. So if someone offered me more food, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll eat more food. And I just kept like eating food and eating food. And they were like, you can tell us if you're full or you can tell us if you don't like this. Like you're not going to hurt our feelings. And well, I didn't realize it at the time, but they were they were just more real and more direct and I could just tell them and not hurt their feelings because I was 15 and didn't want to be a bad a visitor or a bad guest. And, um, that, that, that made me realize that like, Oh, there's like, there are different ways to talk. And then even with proximity, just being in Europe, um, I was, you know, not used to just being so crammed on buses and people were okay being in your bubble at, you know, so much more. So I, I kind of picked up on some of those differences. And um, when I, as I got to know my wife and met her family for the first time, uh, my family, you know, dinner, dinner table, uh, there wasn't a lot of discussion. It was pretty quiet and it's very turn taking kind of conversations. And I got it with my wife and it's um, there's six kids and um, five of the six are girls and their mom and they are just going and overlapping and yakking. And I was just real quiet, just kind of sitting back and my now mother-in-law was like, are you not having fun? What's wrong? Are you okay? Is everything all right? I was like, no, I'm uh, just kind of waiting for my turn to, to talk and just <laughs> waiting for a chance to get in. And so I've just had these little experiences along the way that have opened my eyes to that people are, people are different than, than you in, in lots of different ways. Awesome. 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 Okay. So now let's deepen it. Let's go to that light bulb moment the slap in the face, the moment of recognition where you realize as an educator, all students are not educated equitably. And more importantly, you have to do something different. Mm -hmm. So as I stated before, I had the realization that education was not equitable in, in like my first year of teaching. Um, so I was lucky enough to recognize it earlier on in my career. And I realized my moment really where I, I always knew, but I didn't know what needed to happen or how it was going to happen or anything like that. Um, so my third year teaching was the summer that my, the Brinkel Brown shooting had happened right before mm -hmm. the school mm -hmm. year had started. So I was, like I said, living out in West County, but going to North County where I was teaching and even though the Michael Brown shooting impacted the world, er, like our country and it impacted St. Louis, it was so interesting to drive from West County and then go into North County and see that it was impacting two cultures and two areas so differently. So that like really, really had some feelings in me. And I could like see I was impacting my students and see that like their life was always going to look different than what my brothers was. And so starting to realize that. And so that year they actually started some equity work within our district. And this was my smack in the face moment. It was we did that where you take two steps forward if your parents graduated from college or if you know that thing. And that was like a physical thing that I saw where I was all the way across the room and other educators that I that were at the same part of me were at a completely different spot and in the room. And it was just that things need to change and you are, are going to be a part of that change. And so I knew at that moment you could take it and you could feel guilty or you could feel bad. But no, what you're going to do is you're going to make a change and make sure that you think about that every single time 
you're teaching your students and how are you not going to make a change just in your classroom, but beyond that, because something needs to happen. So it was like a physical, I could like feel it in my body when that happened. That was my smack in the face. Oh, wow. I, I was teaching in another district for the first uh, four years up in uh, up near Hannibal and more rural Missouri. Uh, but I came to Parkway in my fourth year of teaching and just a month before I started was uh, when, the, when Michael Brown was killed. And that that's exactly what I was going to bring up that um, now I was I was in uh, I was in a new district that uh uh, bust students in from from uh, that part of the city. Uh, well, that was North County, you know, part of North County, and even from the city. And I I noticed that a lot of the uh, a lot of the kids that were bust in, they're getting in trouble for things in the hallway. And I even I even caught myself a little bit, like kind of judging, uh, like I, I had to, I had to kind of take a step back and be like, okay. Here they are in the they're they're in the hall and they're they're making a lot of noise, and so as an educator, you hear noise in a hall and you're you know you're turning your head looking seeing what's going on, and right. I I had to kind of you know check myself and be like okay, is you know noisy doesn't mean bad, you know right. I had to I couldn't just start assuming things that mm-hmm. this is a fight or anything, and um, I also recognized that. Some of these kids, when they go home, they go home to environments that aren't as supportive as the rest of the students at my school. And so some of the changes that I started uh, to make was, um, you know, in those those loud, boisterous hallway conversations, like I just I just go over there and I'd be like, hey, guys, what's up? And just, you know, and get to know them and what they were laughing or joking about and build that build that relationship with them. Um, I You know, I, I realized that it was. It was just for them, you know, those kids who were going to be louder in the hallway, they were, you know, they were going to be really verbally expressive. This was about immediacy, about sociocentrism. And why am I going to get onto them for just talking to each other in the hallway, even if it is loud? So what? It's okay. I mean, this is, you know, it'll be, they're not hurting anyone. They're just greeting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came to understanding the kids' uh didn't all have the same supportive home life. I realized that the homework that I was assigning maybe that that that's fine, but some kids go home and they don't have that support at home to do that homework. And so I kind of had to analyze how I was teaching and that maybe I was, you know, a kid's grade or their success in class was based on the support that they did or did not have at home. And so I kind of had to rein that back in and, and some parents today are like, why don't you have any homework? And I say, well, here's why. Cause I, I, I got to be more equitable. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it also really uh, helped me. We, I had a very similar trainings uh, to, to Elise uh, and it kind of started me on that pathway of how am I going to make a change? Like I knew I needed to do something. How can I be a part of that? And so I did some district trainings. One, one teacher, Heather Fleming had a, a class called courageous conversations um, yeah. and, uh, I, that really helped me. And then there were book studies and things like that. But I, what I, what I, I, something that really resonated me, with me when we were doing, uh, one of the first, uh, zoom interviews or, or meetings with, with you, Dr. Holly was, you had mentioned like, all of that stuff is great. All, all of that stuff is awesome. It's, it's all theoretical though. It's not practical. 
Um, it, right. And so I've, I realized that with the, the work with CLR here that this allows me to do like the, the, the practical, the heavy lifting that you, you might say, getting into it yes. and, and really making mm-hmm. a change in, in the classroom. Yes, yes. You know, I just want to follow up and you don't have to answer. It's, it's sort of a tough question in some ways because we've had so many Michael Brown since Michael Brown, right? Um, you know, just as recently as, you know, Tyree Nichols, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, um, given, given the change, you know, or the slap in the face, and yet it seems like little has changed in our society, right? Just in terms of we keep having these incidents and moments does it make you sort of fight harder or kind of, you know, take a little bit of uh win out of the, win out of the cells, if you will. Um, when you look at it in terms of Michael Brown and then yet like, wow, we're still here and you're connecting your equity moment to Michael Brown. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's like I said, it's really, it's really kind of like an off question, but I was just curious listening to you because I started thinking about Mr. Nichols, when you were talking about Michael Brown, right? And I was just like, how has that really moved you or maybe not moved you? Because I could see it both ways. Well, and what's kind of, it's interesting that you're saying that because this is so sad to say, but like, do all of them impact me the same way that Michael Brown, you know what I mean? Like that I'm like truly, and that's what's really sad to me right now that, that you like brought that up. Like, am I numb to it now? Like that's 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 gross to me like that's that's so I think that is also something that continues to help me fight like I do think that that does up not uplift me but it makes me like this work is important this is like Mm -hmm. this is what we need to do and we see that every single day when one of these things happens and it frustrates me that more people don't see the importance of that I think that's where I really come down to is like why don't more people get that? Why don't more people feel that this work is really important? Yeah, it, may, yeah. it, it makes me yeah. want to double down. It 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 reiterates how important uh, the work is. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. To, um, so it so it does it for me mm-hmm. as well, right? Um, okay, so now let's get to what I call the fun question. Mm-hmm. The fun question is looking at your rings of culture. Choose two that resonate with you, that kind of speak to you, that and also. Hopefully we'll get to learn something that maybe folks will be surprised to hear about you um, as they listen in. So when looking at the rings of culture, um, one that I feel validated by is gender. Um, I'm a very strong willed, bold woman, and I'm not afraid to share that. I'm not afraid to share what I think. I I feel very proud being a woman. Um, I grew up with three younger brothers, so I view it as a leadership role as the older woman. My brothers would tell you I was very bossy, Um, but, you know, (laughs) those words can be interchangeable. Uh, Right, right. But with growing up with three brothers, I was around sports all the time. So, like, sometimes, uh, and I know a lot about sports now, so I love being able to be, like, a woman that knows about sports and talking to people. And they're like, oh, you know? you know about that, you know about football. You, I'm like, yeah, sometimes I know more than you just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I don't know that. So I feel very validated by being a woman. Um, 
My second one was age. So I am 33 years old, but I've lived a lot of life in my short 33 years. Uh, uh, My (laughs) younger brother was diagnosed with cancer when he was 18 months old. Um, He -hmm. is he's survived and with us and everything. My mom was diagnosed when she was with breast cancer when I was in college and she was 44. And then I was she beat it as well. And then I was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer at the beginning of the pandemic. So my perspective on life is so different than many other 33-year-olds. And I feel like I could have taken that to a bad place, but I have really done it to be very optimistic and I have a very positive outlook on life. And I don't know that a lot of 33-year-olds view their life and perspective in the same way that I do. So it makes me really relatable to people that have been through things. Um, and it also makes me a little bit wiser beyond my years. So I feel that I'm really lucky to have that. So I feel very validated by my age. Did that make sense when I explained that? Cause to, in my head it made sense, but I just want to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it made total sense. And, and uh, you know, certainly, you know, you bringing in being a cancer survivor certainly you know adds adds to that almost uh almost another ring right because there's a whole sort of culture to that aspect um so no it makes perfect sense and you i think you're you explain it in a different way than we usually hear because you know we talk about things in terms of generational terms and um i think you are a millennial is that yep am i right on that usually usually that's how people kind of talk about it, but you kind of named it. You just said, "Hey, I'm 33, and I'm, 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 you know, I've lived, I've lived some things. Like I, I look at it as like uh, I call it. Um, I don't, I don't look like what I've been Correct. through. Correct, correct. You wouldn't look at me and <laughs> right? know that, but I could tell you all right. about it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. What about you, Tony? Uh, I, I also uh, – I'll, I'll continue with age um, and I, I kind of – I feel like millennials have just like gotten a bad rap um, <laughs> at, at, at just – you know, they were making fun of us for avocado toast and canceling cable and things like that. And uh, I mean I've always – I, I feel like we have – we've uh, – as a, as a generation, uh, you know, we're one of the – Generations that's uh, not going to ha- – whose outlooks aren't as uh, high as generations before them. Um, and I also – I also see – you know, we, we've we've gone through a lot of adversity. Like I came into the workforce uh, right at the end of the Great Recession. It was real difficult to get a job. And then the and and the right. pandemic and I was and so right. uh, economically we've we've had to go through a lot of things you know put off whole you know life decisions you know whether you're going to get married and buy a house and things like that's really impacted uh, my generation. Um, I also kind of see myself as a you know one foot in older technology and one foot in newer technology, and so I I feel like I can I help I end up helping some of my colleagues a lot who are who are older. Uh, with, with with some of the technology, and then I, with my, I think it helps me with my students that uh, yes, I'm comfortable with technology, but then they can show me new things. So just the other day, I was like, okay, what is this? What does the ONG mean when you're texting someone? Because we we did an assignment where we had to text or tweet something uh, in history. 
And I was like, what is, you know, help me out guys with this. You know, I'm the, now I'm the old guy. So help, help me out. Right. An- another one right. that has uh, kind of, I feel like it just ends up validating me is um, just like class and socioeconomic culture. Um, both, both of my parents mm. kind of came from uh, a lower socioeconomic class and um, they were the first, you know, like the, they were the first generation to uh, get to college and uh, and so I I feel like I have a lot of the the habits and and mentality of a of lower and middle class like you got to work really hard you got to be super frugal you know close that refrigerator door you don't just stand there with it open uh, you know we're not heating the outside are we keep the, you know close that door you got to be super right, timely right. super clean very orderly um, and that's just kind of um, that that's been a lot of my upbringing. Um, and there's 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 positives and negatives. Sometimes I have to check some of the things that I was raised on and, and realize that maybe that that doesn't apply to everyone or everything. But yeah, cl- cl- right. class I feel like kind of describes a lot uh, about me. Um, I ended up interestingly when I travel. I, I've I've since traveled to Germany uh, a lot of times. I've been there six seven times, and I, I've actually wow. found that I feel almost like really at home there. Uh, just wow. very very um, with a lot of those. Uh, a lot of those um, just cultural, you know, like timeliness is super important. Cleanliness is super important uh, over there. Um, and it, it probably has something to do with uh, German immigrants coming and settling in the St. Louis area. Uh, and yeah. uh, so it was it was interesting to go, uh, you know, in high school and then since then to go travel back there. And there are some things that are really different, like being real direct, but then other things are very very similar sure sure so let me just ask this do you have german heritage or you you have a german so background? uh it, it, it sure Th- three of uh three of my grandparents have german last names uh mm-hmm. like my and so my 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 grandparents uh my grandma on my mom's side like did speak some german but she she like so i think she was raised maybe speaking a little german but learned english um but it's right. it's like it you know I'm far enough removed. I wouldn't know what what uh, what generation of immigrant I am uh, from it. But really, it started in high school. My dad said, "Well, if you're going to take a language, you need to take Spanish. That's going to be the most yes. practical language." And I said, "Forget you, Dad. I'm taking German." <laughs> just so it was it was just a it was just to prove him wrong or just to right. give it to stick it to him for for just my own rebel reasons. And it's just kind of right. blo- blossomed right. into that. <laughs> got it. Got it. According to most, our CLR professional learning opportunities are the best. Whether it is our basic course, Journey to Responsiveness, our focus on culture training, or aligning your PBIS to your CLR, we provide sessions that are thought-provoking, practical, and reflective. There's one CLR learning opportunity that stands out, though, even among the best, and that is our CLR Summer Deep Dive Institutes. It is literally the only opportunity to go deep, deep into the proverbial CLR pool. Three days, 25 like-minded people, total focus on validation and affirmation. You will be changed forever and you will be equipped to be a change agent for others. Don't miss the chance to change, to transform. Join us in Los Angeles, Chicago, or Santa Fe this summer. 
go to www.culturallyresponsive.org, culturallyresponsive.org. Click on Deep Dive Institutes. Register now. Let me um, transition to, like, we kind of go from the fun question to the harder question. And I find that, you know, it depends on your what you have conceptualized, what we mean by situational appropriateness, how you answer this question, right? Which is, think, I mean, you, you've kind of already answered it, Tony, in terms of even your German experience, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's causing for you to practice uh, some, some cultural dexterity, if you will. So the question is, when did you know you had to kind of adapt culturally or linguistically and were you successful or not? I think that's the most, that's the really the interesting part of the question. Were you able to pull it off? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? Like, that's really what we try to get into here. So mine is verbal, verbal overlap. Um, when I am in a conversation with somebody, I am like to show I'm engaged. I'm just like going back and forth. And I think it's because I also grew up with three younger brothers. So like to get a word in, you like had to just say what you think and say when you want to. Um, so it's funny the other day I was talking to one of my administrators and he was asking me a question about PD and we were like outside and I was like, just going. And I was like pointing my fingers or whatever. And he was like, you know, at least if somebody saw us from afar right now, they would think you were like yelling at me and like reprimanding me and all of that. He's like, but because I know you, like, I know that this is just how you are. Like, like he's gotten to know me. So I definitely had to learn in different situations when I was in different rooms with different administrators, different teachers, like there's very much, I can tell older teachers don't necessarily always like me because I'm going to like talk and be in your face. So I definitely learned how to like reel it in. It wasn't always the best at it, but I also was surrounded by administrators that were accepting of who I was. Like they, I've really been supported where they always validated and affirmed me and like got to know me and knew that that was a part of who I am and have given me tips on what I can do in different situations. So I'm really lucky to be surrounded by such good people that were okay with that. Even though it still annoys mm. the hell out of my father. He can't stand it whatsoever, but it is what it is. <laughs> it is, <what> it is. <laughs> do you think though, ultimately you could pull it off if you had to? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I do it all the time. I feel like I code switch is really what I like when I'm in a certain room with certain people. I definitely, yeah, mm-hmm. but it took me a while to figure that out in my career. Like it took me a couple of years to figure out when to do that and when I had to be, but I definitely have. Yes, I definitely can do it. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. All right. All right. So we have the verbal overlap in terms of uh, cultural adaptation. What about, what about you? So uh, this is a time when I did not do a a very good job of of practicing situational appropriateness. I was, um, I I think I lost and lost out on a teaching position in an interview because of it. Um, Mm. I was, I was interviewing uh, for a a job. So I was teaching up in Northern Missouri, Northeast Missouri. And uh, I was in an interview uh, at a middle school and those interviews, I mean, the big panel interviews, you know, 10 teachers there. And I, I just, I wanted to like get to know people and, and break the ice a little bit. And, and it was really important for me to like build a little bit of a connection and a relationship. And, and part of me thought, Hey, if I can do that in this room, then I could probably, then they'll see that I can do that with kids too. 
that, you know, build these relationships. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking, you know, I didn't realize it at the time that, you know, I was, you know, really trying to, uh, I was going for immediacy, like that that was important to me, that I know people first before I just start talking to them and spill my, you know, or I might start spilling my guts and then we get to business. Right. And um, that the interview, um, it just, it, 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 I think I, I ended up wasting wasting time, you know, mm-hmm. and and just I spent too much time trying to build that relationship and get to know them uh, with immediacy. Mm-hmm. And then when it came down to those, you know, the serious questions of, uh, you know, what kind of a teacher are you? How do you deal with this situation? I, I just didn't have the time to to get there. Right. And and, and right. you know, I looked back and I was like, ah, I probably, you know, I probably should have done that a little bit differently. I should have you know, re- reeled in that immediacy and, and just got down to maybe a little bit more business. Yeah. Wow. That's very, you know, I appreciate that because it's very nuanced and, um, you know, CLR is really all about the nuance and that's a very, I, w- I wonder like how many people in that situation would recognize, um, what you were doing unsuccessfully. Right. Like, I mean, you know, I think I think from a mainstream perspective, they might call it trying to what it not not kiss ass, but there's another term for it. You're trying to, you know, mm-hmm. ham them mm-hmm. up or, you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, but really you're looking at it in a totally different way mm-hmm. um, that typically does not transfer to mainstream culture. <laughs> yeah, it's, especially in a, a 30 minute interview. But yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, this yeah. The, the reason that I, I think that it lost me out on the interview was that I was I, I was in the final round of interviews. So uh, so it wasn't like it was some big interview fair and all oh, they didn't pick me out of the hundred. Uh, I, I knew that I was the, the final right. two and then didn't get it. Interesting. Interesting. OK. Well, I like both of you focused on uh, very particular behaviors. So that's really cool Mm -hmm. and informative because a lot of people, they don't they don't like look at it that way, as you well know. So it's good that we can kind of educate folks Mm -hmm. uh, around verbal overlap and immediacy, if you will. Um, All right. Last question. You know, what keeps you going? What keeps you grooving? What keeps you moving in terms of art, family, whatever? Like where do where do you go to? restore if you will for me i would say dance so i grew up a dancer i love music and i feel like it's also a way for people to connect no matter who you are wherever you're at and it really keeps me grounded into that equity and clr work um i feel like i have met so many people from many different walks of life but dance was always something in those experiences like that I was able to connect with them. Um, and also I like, I'm using it more in my classroom. Um, I've always had dance be a part of my classroom. And now with CLR, I use it very intentionally and I'm seeing like the connections that I can make. And, um, so like TikTok, many people are like, Oh, TikTok, these kids are on TikTok all the time. But my kids show me a TikTok. I can do it after watching it three times, and they think I am the coolest person on earth. <laughs> so I am like the other day. I had a little girl whose rhythm maybe needs some work, and she couldn't. It was like a time when they got to choose what they wanted to learn about, and so I like worked with her on it. And then these other two boys like joined. It. They're like, "Oh, Mrs. Meyer, you know how to dance?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I do." Like, and then we started do the gritty. We started do the st- the sturdy sturdy am i saying that correctly okay so i think it's called the sturdy (laughs) 
So, okay. but it's like really helped us. So I think dance is a way to like bring people together. And I think TikTok has allowed yeah. people who never thought they could dance. It's allowing them to feel like they can do that. So dance. That's so cool. Yeah, That's absolutely. Awesome. And it is a way to bring people together. And TikTok also affirms for people who can't dance. It just sort of reminds us of that as well. It works both it ways. Does. It does. But that, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and that's fun, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, did you say you professionally dance or you've always just been interested in dancing? So I grew up like competitively dance and then I danced in college. So I was like um, okay. for my college dance team. So like I got to go to NCAA tournaments. I got to go to um, awesome. bowl games. So like that's really where. And then I taught dance afterwards. So as much as I would have liked to be like a background dancer, I didn't get that far. Teaching just got in the way. Caught you in the yeah. way. Yeah. OK. <laughs> awesome. 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 And uh, for you, uh, stanky leg is my go-to there dance. You go. But I, <laughs> I, I would, I would probably uh, end up looking more like Left Shark. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> um, uh, so uh, for me, it's been um, when I think about like uh, you know equity work and CLR work. Um, I my I have a I have a five year old son and then another kid on the way in the next month. And mm. we my, my thank you my my wife and I uh, participated in a in an, um, a group here in St Louis called We Stories, and they are a group that uh, helps. Uh, helps people, helps families with young children um, talk about uh, race and equity issues uh, through uh, through stories. Uh, and so we we signed up for that, and uh, you know got a bunch of books, and uh, it it's been it's been really cool to just um, help him see other cultures from an early age. Um, whether it's people, you know, noticing people with different skin in, in books or, uh, looking at the holidays of different cultures, uh, through the books. And, um, that's been me being a world history teacher. I'm, I'm aware of the different cultures and Parkway is awesome because it has so many, uh, different, um, religious cultures. And so, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, being able to read, you know, at the end of the day, you know, read a couple stories with him and, uh, you know, He's he's the future, and I, I feel like I'm I'm doing something not only with my own students but with my own family. Um, you know, awesome. build build you know building building people who are um, aware of others. You know, others' differences. Absolutely, absolutely. It's called We Stories. We Stories. Um, yes. Is, is that just local to St. Louis, or is it? I is I it am kind of all over. You know what? I'm pretty sure that they do do things other other places, but it, it's it's I'm based in St. Louis. But I I'm pretty at least when we did it, it was uh, there were there were there were couples uh, from the St. Louis area, but outside the St. Louis area as well. And it was it was all over Zoom at first because because of COVID. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. I want to say thank you to both of you. This was great. This was fun. And I hope to be in person with you at some point along our journey there in mm-hmm. Parkway. And I hope that you will lead others. You know, we really need you to to lead others in this work, to keep it going, you know, to keep it moving. You know, we're doing we're doing our camp, but our job is to find people like you who live there and can kind of make it flow with your colleagues. So we're going to be calling on you at some point. Yeah. <laughs> we're here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again. And uh, kudos to you. 
And I want you to stay sizzling hot. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. Uh, Good. I love the energy of the two-person interview. It's really cool. And uh, just the sort of similar but different journeys that they had, I think, one of the similarities that we heard there was the sort of uh, Missourian experience, if you will, um, and also uh, the dynamics of St. Louis in terms of the city versus the county areas, which is um, an interesting dynamic if you if you if you've been there before and you understand and you understand that. And I'm going to go back to where I kind of started in the opening since they both did mention Michael Brown, and I felt like I asked them a very interesting question about how they're seeing their sort of education uh, shifts based on what happens in our macro, you know, what's happening in the macro society. And, uh, you know, this is a real question because even in my own work in the past week or so, uh, doing some professional development, I had a teacher who said, you know, can, can we talk about the Nichols situation and how as a kindergarten teacher, she said, I feel impacted by that because I'm looking at my, you know, I'm looking at my black and brown students and I'm wondering what type of world am I preparing them for? And that's that's really where I'm trying to what I'm trying to go with this um, in terms of how we connect the two. And I asked that of Tony and Elise kind of on the spot, like, how how are you connecting the two, given your beginning with Michael Brown? And I'm not sure it's a question that we can answer just offhand, you know, we have to give some thought and I can bring it home because as you, if you, if you listen to our very first episode, my education career began with Rodney King, right? So I have always felt that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's something I've held on to for the 30 years I've been in education, given that my journey sort of began in alignment with Rodney King. And perhaps our journeys will always in some way be linked to something that's happening in the larger society. And the question becomes, what do we make of it in our classrooms? And I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Once again, I want you to go out and show someone, show your students, show your colleagues some outrageous love. I want you to be fabulous. I want you to be safe. And I want to dedicate uh, this episode to all the people who are experiencing, you know, the pain, the grief, the hurt in terms of what happened in Memphis and obviously the Nichols family. But there are other families that have been impacted as well, including the children and the students. So I want to I want to dedicate this episode to those folks. I want to say thank you to my, I'm called my editing A-team, and we will see you next month when we complete the series Sizzling Hot Cadre Members. Mm-hmm.